that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together in freedom to study your word. We thank you for this nation. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct our leaders. We pray that you would secure our borders and that you would give us the protection only you can give uh, from our enemies. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us as a church, especially this week as we prepare to meet on Sunday to discuss a new meeting place. We pray that we might make a wise decision and a decision that will... Uh, glorify you. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we would be able to focus, to concentrate on the teaching of your word. We thank you for God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and who fills us with your word, enabling us to understand it and to see how it applies to our own lives. And we pray that as we study your word, it will, we'll, we'll realize a greater dimension of application that is always found in your word that goes beyond our own spiritual life, but teaches us how to think about the events around us, about our culture, and about history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1787, Alexander Tyler, a classics and history professor at the University of Edinburgh, was asked what contributed to the fall of the Athenian Republic. His answer is on the screen. He said... A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. Sounds like something that could have been written yesterday. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history up to the present has been about 200 years, so we're living on borrowed time. During those 200 years, these civilizations, according to Alexander Tyler, go through the following sequence the sequence that's familiar to many of you. He was the one who originated this sequence. They begin in bondage, and so they move from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, then from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. In fact, I was having a discussion just about 20 minutes ago and discussing the state of Bible churches in Houston, and I said the problem we have is complacency and apathy, that people have things going wrong in many churches, not just Bible churches, but many different churches, and people just stay there because they're complacent and they're apathetic and they no longer have a real vision for studying the Scriptures in an in-depth manner so that it can apply to every dimension of their life. They'd rather sit where they've been for 20, 30, 40, 50 years rather than go somewhere where they know the Word is taught in a more precise manner or where they're not slipping into praise and worship or church growth kind of things. And this is happening in a number of congregations in the Houston area. In fact, I got a call yesterday from a lady who... uh, As soon as I answered the phone, she said, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Question number one, do you have traditional worship? And I said, yes, we do. She said, I think you're the only Bible church in Houston that still has traditional worship. It's amazing. That's why I'm calling every Bible church in Houston. I'm fed up with where I've been going to church because they're into praise and worship, and it's more like listening to a rock band every Sunday morning than than, uh, worshiping the Lord. 
So this is the trend of the day. But it has not just affected churches, it affects civilizations. And the reason is, is because, especially from a doctrinal viewpoint, looking at the U- United States from a, uh, its spiritual heritage, it is because with a rejection of doctrine, Complacency is entered in, and therefore there's no longer that desire to know and apply the truth and to move forward. So there's this progression that goes from bondage through various stages to liberty and to abundance. And then once people hit that prosperity test, then it's easy to just forget about the Lord. It's easy to become complacent. It happens in individual lives, and collectively it happens in cultures and in societies. And once you become complacent, that leads to apathy where you just don't care anymore about getting the truth or even applying the truth or even living the truth. And once you do that, then the, the guard is dropped and evil and human viewpoint and paganism begins to come in. And so you move back towards dependency and into bondage. And this is ultimately a tyranny to the sin nature. And we see a classic example of that in the Scripture in our study this evening in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19 gives us the story of God's judgment on Sodom, on the cities of the plains, because of their perversion. Now, we won't get very far if we get anywhere at all tonight in Genesis chapter 19. And the reason is because we have to set some... Background. We have to set a framework for understanding why God destroyed the five cities of the plain and in terms of being able to understand application. You see, application in the Scripture isn't always just about figuring out how to live your own spiritual life and deal with your own problems. When people today focus on that, they are merely manifesting the same traits as the rest of the culture. And I've heard that from a number of doctrinal believers. Well, I don't know why we need to study that. I just want to learn more about how to solve problems in my life. Well, what are we talking about? Me, 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 me. Well, that's not any different from the praise and worship crowd that sings about I, 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 I. It's all about me and my spiritual life and what I'm doing and how I can live better. And it's all about me. And you forget that it's all about the Lord. And it's all about studying the entire Word of God. It's the whole counsel of God that teaches us how to think biblically and how to interact with the events that surround us so that we can have real discernment in our lives and we can understand everything that's going on from the problems on the border to problems in uh, the Supreme Court to problems in public education and problems in uh, morality of the nation. And so we have to study passages like this in terms of how they present God's viewpoint on society, God's viewpoint on culture, God's viewpoint on history. Was I hearing an organ in the background? Oh, a train. Okay, I just heard a noise. All right. So as we look at Genesis 19, we're going to pick up a lot of principles of application related to understanding culture and civilization, how God governs the affairs of men, and how establishment laws operate. That God uh, ordained certain establishment principles which he built into the human race. He built into the warp and woof of creation so that even before the fall, these were necessary to follow in order to provide uh, stability for man. And when these divine institutions now in a post-fall environment are, uh, are disobeyed and when they're violated, what happens is cultures and societies, whether the culture is a family, whether the culture is a church, whether a culture is a, uh, some sort of just a small local area, a town, a village, whatever it is, that when those cultures or a culture of a business, when they fail to follow these establishment principles, then they become enmeshed in the tyranny of man's sin nature. And it always leads to self-destruction. So let's take a minute to just review where we are in terms of Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is actually a part of a section of Scripture that began in Genesis 18. All the events in Genesis 18 and 19 happen within a 24-hour period. 
So let's not lose our perspective there. It starts off in Genesis 18.1 that the Lord appeared to uh, Abraham in the heat of the day. So it's the first day, it's already the afternoon. And then the event at the end of, at the end of chapter, chapter 19, we read in verse 27 that Abraham went early in the morning to pl- the place where he had stood before the Lord. So that's early the next morning. And then the episode with Lot and his daughters occurs on that same day. So it all happens within a very brief period of time, and it's quite an important uh, day for us to pay attention to. Chapter 18 provides the introduction. You have the visit to Abraham of three men who just appear before him. We find out later that two of these men are angels. And the third is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 18, we discover that there's a test for Abraham. And so chapter 18 fits within the general narrative of chapters 12 through 24. And the focus here is on Abraham. We start off with the call of Abraham, test for Abraham. And every chapter focuses on Abraham until we get to chapter 19. In chapter 19, there's no mention of Abraham until we get down to about verse 25 or 26, and we see Abraham coming out of his tent to look in the direction of Sodom, and there he sees the consequences of the judgment. But this chapter focuses not on Abraham, but on what's going on around Abraham. So in conclusion, what we see is that verses 1 through 15 focused on a test for Abraham related to grace orientation his own grace orientation towards God, to these visitors, to those who are coming to his tent, and his hospitality. Then in verses 16 down through 33, we see how that grace orientation is built on uh, with, the, with his application of impersonal love. And he finds out from God that there's going to be a judgment on Sodom. And, of course, Lot has not treated him well. Lot has abused his, the, the freedoms that, that Abraham gave him, and he's abused Abraham's generosity. But nevertheless, Abraham is going to intercede for Abraham, and he is going to uh, negotiate with God, as it were, to get God to deliver uh, Lot and not uh, judge him when he judges the rest of the people in Sodom. So chapter 18 provides a prologue or an introduction to the main scene of judgment, which is in chapter 19 itself. So chapter 19 completely shifts the focal point to what's going on in Sodom. Now, as we approach chapter 19 and the judgment on Sodom and the destruction of Sodom, we should ask ourselves a couple of questions. First question that's important is, what is, what's important about this episode with Sodom? Why is this information here? I mean, the thr- thrust of the narrative from 12 to 24 is all about Abraham, yet we have this large section of verses here that doesn't have anything to do with Abraham at all, with his spiritual life, with God's uh, covenant with Abraham. It is, the, the scene completely shifts. So why is this here? Well, the first answer is that this serves as a warning to the nation Israel. Remember the context. Genesis is really the prologue to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah or the Law. And it's written by Moses just before the people go into the land, and it's written to tell the people why God has chosen them and what God is going to do through them and why they are a special people and why God called them out from the other nations and why... God has enabled them to defeat the Canaanites and why the Canaanites must be destroyed. And so this is a uh, foreshadowing of that event. And in chapter 19, we're going to see a warning that God gives to Israel about assimilating to the culture of the Canaanites. That if you assimilate to the paganism of the Canaanite culture, it will inevitably lead to a deterioration and a downfall. And just as God judges the uh, Sodomites, God is also going to have to judge uh, Israel. And the second answer that presents itself is that God is going to teach again, as he has several times already in Genesis, twice already in Genesis, the importance of judgment salvation. 
the importance of judgment salvation. Judgment salvation was first taught in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and the woman disobeyed God. God announced to them that there was, a, there was going to be judgment as a result of that, what the consequences of that judgment were, that they were spiritually dead now. There were going to be certain consequences that followed from that that impacted the world around them, that impacted their marriage, that impacted society as they had it at that point, which was just the society of their own marriage, and that this would also affect nature. And now thorns and thistles would grow from the ground, and that uh, animals would... Uh, be, become carnivores. All of this is part of the consequences of sin. Then God provides a gracious solution. So he teaches grace that salvation can't be on the basis of their own works. They tried to cover up their nakedness with uh, uh, clothes made out of fig leaves. And he, God killed animals to provide them with the uh, skins of animals. And in that he taught the doctrine of salvation. And he taught them that salvation would come through a sacrifice. Then we skip ahead to the next major judgment in Genesis, and that's the judgment of the flood. And in the judgment of the flood, once again, we see the, these two principles working together. The first principle is that of God's grace in providing a solution. And God came to Noah, and he announced the flood a hundred years before it happened, and he gave Noah the uh, mission to proclaim the gospel, that there would be one way to be delivered from this flood, and that would be through the ark. And so there's the gracious announcement of the coming judgment and the way of escape, and that went on for a 100 years. And then, of course, there's the judgment of the flood, which lasted for a year, and the only way to survive was by being on that ark. And so there were eight that survived. There were eight who were saved. There were eight who, were, who understood who God was, they understood his nature, and they understood what was expected of them when they got off the ark, and they, had, they built altars, and they sacrificed to God, and God established a covenant with them. And everyone there, all eight of them, understood the basis of that covenant. Now, that's important because the new civilization after the flood begins with eight believers who all understand the truth. And it's only a couple of generations before everything is messed up again before everything starts developing into um, pure paganism. Now, when we look at judgment salvation, one thing that always comes up that is such a problem for people, and we've discussed this before, and that is that God provides one and only one way of salvation. He doesn't let us decide how we want to be saved. Okay, Lord, I think that, that being good is going to work. I think that going to church is going to work. I think that uh, just being a wonderful, nice person is going to work. And so people come up with all kinds of ideas. I think ritual is the way to uh, come up with salvation. And people don't like the idea that God says there's only one way to salvation. I'm going to set the terms of salvation. In fact, I'm going to provide the basis for salvation. And you're either saved the way I say you're saved or you're not saved at all. And man just rejects that, and people think it's arrogant, it's hostile, and we've talked about the exclusivity of the gospel before. And the basic problem, it seems, that people want to have is they project onto God this sentimental concept of, of watered-down love that they have, and they say just, how can a loving God send his creatures to hell? And that's their focal point. God just wouldn't do that to me. I'm so much better than some of these mass murderers and pedophiles and uh, whatever other per perverse people there may be out there. How could God save them and not me? I'm so much nicer. But it comes down to an understanding of sin and righteousness. And that is really the undergirding doctrine, the supporting doctrine for, under for salvation, is that the righteousness of God is violated. The righteousness of God was violated when... Uh, Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The righteousness of God was violated by, this, by the antediluvian, the pre-Noahic, pre-flood civilization. And the righteousness of God is violated here. And that's why righteousness is such a key element in 
the prologue in verses uh, 16 to 33 in chapter 18, the key issue there was righteousness. And when uh, Abraham starts negotiating with God, he says, well, so you're going to judge Sodom. Well, how many, how many righteous people do there need to be in Sodom for you to avoid judgment? If there's 50 folks there who are righteous, will you, will you, will you bypass it? God says, yes. And he says, well, what about 45? There are 45 righteous people there. Will you not judge it? And he works his way all the way down. And God basically says that, well, there's only Noah and his family, and that's not enough. We'll get them out, and then I'll judge the rest of them. But the issue is righteousness. And the point that the text makes again and again, that Scripture makes, is because God is righteous, and man fails to meet God's standard of righteousness, God is uh, impelled by his own character, by his own integrity, to judge mankind. And throughout this chapter, and throughout all of these elements of judgment, we see evidence of God's love. It is God's love that brings him to Adam and the woman in the garden to explain what's happened to them and what the consequences are and to present to them the solution to their sin. And then it is God in his love for the human race that he appears to know and he announces the judgment. He just doesn't blast them from heaven. You know, this is one thing you see in the, in the pagan narratives of the various flood stories, whether it's the Babylonian flood story or, or uh, Egyptian flood stories or whatever they may be. It's, it, God just makes, the gods just make this sort of arbitrary decision and, and blast man with, with the flood. But you see from the Bible that God announces it a hundred years ahead of time. That's grace. It's his love in action. He doesn't, there's nothing that necessitates that he uh, give them a warning of a hundred years, but he does. And then when God deals with Sodom and Gomorrah, we see his grace back in chapter 14. Remember, there were the four kings in the Keter-Laomer uh, alliance that invaded down through the Jordan Valley, and they devastated the five cities of the plains and destroyed them and uh, captured, kidnapped everybody, pillaged this, the, their towns and and took their, them and their slaves and everyone captive and then headed north. And who delivered them? God delivered them in grace. God is delivering the perverted uh, citizens of Sodom and the cities of the plains and the king of Sodom. And he is using that deliverance also as a way to focus our attention on their rejection of grace. Because at the end of that episode, what happens? Abraham has delivered them. It's very clear that they understand who Abraham is as a servant of the Most High God because on the way back, Abraham meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, who is the righteous king, and his reputation would have been known all over the area. Folks, Jerusalem to Sodom was only about 40 miles. It's not that far. These folks knew each other. They were fully aware of who Melchizedek was. They were fully aware of what he stood for in terms of worshiping El Elyon, the Most High God. And there was still a tradition, even though it was perverted in some places, less perverted in others, about God and the judgment of the flood. We're only talking 500 years. But they had perverted it during those 500 years. And so it was time for judgment. But God is dealing with them in grace when he delivers them, Melchizedek came out. Melchizedek met with, with Abraham, Abram, and they sat down together, and he brought bread and wine out to Abram. And Abram gave to, um, to Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils, a tenth of the plunder. And of course, you remember uh, the king of Sodom got in the way there and said, well, let's not give him quite so much. We can, uh, let's negotiate this. And the king of Sodom was right there. He witnessed the whole interchange between these two incredible uh, men who worshipped God. And it was a testimony and a witness against the king of Sodom and all of the Sodomites uh, showing them the truth of God and his word and his relationship with Abraham and Melchizedek, and yet they rejected it, and they went back to their own uh, depravity, their own paganism and perversion, and so God is now going to judge them. So there's been grace all the way through this, which is a key principle in Scripture that grace always precedes judgment. 
God is not an arbitrarily righteous God, which is how human viewpoint wants to present him. His righteousness and his justness is totally compatible with his love, and they always work together. And God is demonstrating this again in the life of Lot, even though Lot is a carnal believer. Lot has been in rebellion against God, and Lot would rather enjoy all of the uh, pleasures and benefits of human culture and the society of the evil and wicked people in Sodom than to live out in the country away from the uh, pleasures of civilization so that he's not impacted by the wickedness and the evil and the pagan values of the folks in Sodom. So even though Lot is in rebellion, God deals with him in grace, and God is going to deliver him. So the answer to the problem of an exclusive salvation, how is it that God can say there's one and only one way to to heaven, is to focus on the issue of how can a uh, righteous God let sinners into heaven. The issue isn't how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire. It's how can a righteous God let his let unrighteous sinners into his presence. And we have to go back to a basic principle that we studied before. And that focuses on the character of God in terms of his righteousness and his justice. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God can bless. But what the righteousness of God rejects, The justice of God must condemn. But in history, we see that God in love provides a perfect solution to his righteousness, always provides a perfect solution to his righteous demands by providing a savior or a redemption solution where righteousness is given to man so that man can conform to God's standard not on the basis of who he is or what he does, but on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Of course, in the Old Testament, that was a future provision. So as a result of this, God can bless those who are operating on imputed righteousness. This is why God can bless Lot. is because Lot is righteous, not because of who he is, but Lot is righteous because he possesses that imputed righteousness of Christ. He's positionally righteous. So God blesses righteous Lot and delivers him, and he judges and condemns and he destroys unrighteous Sodom. Now that all deals with the second answer to the question, which was that God is teaching judgment salvation, that his righteousness, when violated, must present judgment from his justice on fallen man, and that God also deals with man in grace and provides a redemption solution. That's the second answer. Now I want to go back to the first answer. The first answer is that this provides a warning to Israel, a, a warning to Israel that if you follow the path of the Canaanites that are in the land, and remember God said, told Abraham, that the reason he wasn't giving him the land just yet is because their sin hasn't reached a fullness yet. That is the sin of the majority of the Canaanites. But in Sodom, it had. Sodom also foreshadows uh, the perversion where the rest of the Canaanites were eventually going to go. And that once man descends into paganism, apart from the grace of God and apart from biblical principles, All human society is going to degrade to the level of the Sodomite culture. And so there's a warning to the nation Israel of what God will do to them if they assimilate to the paganism of the Canaanite culture. And that warning of God to Israel also applies to any society, any culture, down through human history that degenerates and perverts the social institutions that God established from the creation for the uh, order and peace and stability of the human race. Now, this warning is seen as is referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 21 through 27. I'll just put these up on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 29, Moses is reviewing everything that God has done for Israel. The whole book of Deuteronomy is one Bible class, one sermon, 
where, where Mo, uh, Moses is reiterating everything that God has done to Israel. He reiterates to some degree the Mosaic law, reminds them of the covenant God has made with them and what the provisions are, the blessing and the cursings. And in verse 21 through 27 of chapter 29, he uses Sodom as an example to warn them of what will happen. And so we read in verse 21, And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law, so that this separation had to do with discipline for disobedience, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land, that's the, that's the alien. Aliens don't come from outer space. Aliens come from across the Rio Grande here, of course, across the Jordan there. So that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, that is when the Jews see the exercise of the, the, the five stages of discipline on the nation, that they will recognize that this comes from the Lord. And they'll look and they'll say, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. And I think this is ultimately fulfilled in what happens during the tribulation in the land of Israel. The whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It's not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. Like the overthrow of what? Sodom and Gomorrah. See, God is saying, I, I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in the way I did, because I'm showing you what I'm going to eventually do to your land, the land I've promised you, if you don't walk according to my laws and according to my statutes. Verse 24, all nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? In other words, this, is, this whole thing is designed to be a testimony of God's justice and righteousness. Verse 25, then people would say, because they, that is the Jews... Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. What's that? That's the idolatry. Historically, what happened to Israel was they did assimilate to the paganism of the Canaanite culture. They adopted the idols of the, and they, they bought into the fertility nature gods that uh, dominated the surrounding nations. They eventually bought into the Baal worship and the worship of the Asherim. And this led them to what? Sexual perversion, sexual degradation. See, there's a, what we're seeing here is that the Bible shows that there is a relationship between rejection of God, social degradation, and sexual perversion. Sexual perversion is not morally and spiritually and socially neutral. See, this is one of the myths that we hear from the uh, so-called gay crowd, from the homosexuals, is that, that this isn't any different from hetero heterosexual relationships. We can have faithful homosexual relations, which is a lie. They can't. They don't. It's extremely rare. And I'll demonstrate that when we get to a study in a few weeks. But what the Scripture is showing from a biblical viewpoint is that there is this connection between a rejection of God, social degradation, the loss of freedom, and sexual degradation. And you can't separate them. They always go hand in hand down through history. And yet that, when that isn't taught, when that isn't understood, then people are just living the lie and going down the same path as what happened in, in Canaan. So what happens in Deuteronomy 29 is the Lord is, or Moses is saying that what's going to happen is that foreigners and others are going to see this future judgment on the land, and they'll be asked, what in the world happened here? The brimstone, the salt, this land is, is uh, infertile, it's destroyed. What did they do? They rejected God. They went after the idols, and they got involved in sexual sin and sexual degradation, and so God judged them. And verse 27, And the anger of the Lord was aroused against the land to bring on it every curse that is written in the book. So the events of Genesis 19 are designed also to lay a foundation 
for what God is going to do in, in Israel in the future and to serve as a warning to the nation of what happens when you get away from the divine institutions, what happens when you get away from the law, and what happens when you, uh, per, when, when you get involved in the fertility religions and start thinking in terms of paganism. That's why it's so important for us to understand why we can't think like pagans. Why we have to do an analysis of the culture around us is because these ideas constantly seep into our culture, in the, I mean the culture of the local churches. And people all come up with these ideas, and that's why you look around places like Houston and Dallas and Cal- Southern California and uh, the East Coast, and you say, what's happening to all these churches in America? You can rarely find churches today that aren't getting into praise and worship music and the contemporary chorus stuff and, and uh, si- uh, not signs and wonders, but uh, church growth and all these things. What's going on here? It's because people are bringing all these pagan ideas with them with all this baggage there in their backpacks, it's in their briefcases, it's in all the stuff that they bring with them into the church, and nobody's teaching them how to identify the elements of pagan thought in their own mentality. They learn a lot of Bible, but they've got this thing going on where, they've, where on the one hand they think in terms of the Bible, on the other hand they've got all these pagan ideas, and what happens on Sunday is completely disjointed from what happens when they go to work on Monday and what happens when they go to work on Tuesday. And many folks think, you know, that's all fine and good that the Bible teaches that, but I've got to work in, this, in, this, in, this, in my job, and I'm in a human resources department, and we've got to... We've got all these government regulations now on how we have to treat uh, the homosexuals and how we have to treat women and how we have to do this and how we have to do that. And how in the world can I be a Christian and live like this? So, uh, you know, I just get into this scenario where we, we do one thing on Sunday, we compartmentalize and we take our Christian life and we put it over here and we take our work life and we put it over here and we take our marriage and we put it over here and none of these things integrate. And then we wonder why doctrine doesn't work. It's because you've basically become what James calls a Daisukas Christian. You've fragmented your soul rather than integrating every area of your life under the authority of the Word of God. So I want to take some time before we get into Genesis 19 to go through some basic introductory principles so that we have the right framework. I'm going to start at the flood. Put a little timeline up here so you at least have that to orient yourself time-wise. First point. I've got about 20 points. Some of them are brief. Some of them aren't, but we'll work our way through them. First point. In 2504 B.C., you have the flood. Now, I'm going to take a strict biblical chronology. We've gone through this before in Genesis. You can go back and listen to the lessons. They're somewhere around lessons 53, 54, 55, where we deal with all the... uh, uh, intricate chronological details. But there I showed there are no gaps in the genealogies. And so if you take all those numbers the way they're given in the Scripture literally, then you end up with a date of 2504 B.C. for the flood. Now that runs counter to contemporary archaeology. It runs counter to any sort of dating mechanisms that are based on evolutionary presuppositions. And all dating mechanisms, carbon-14, potassium, argon, radiometric dating, all of these are all, all buy into evolutionary presuppositions in terms of how they interpret the data. Now, one of the things you all ought to watch, since we're in Genesis, and many of you have been through all those uh, previous lessons with me, is that... Uh, uh, there's going to be a new study supposed to be released this fall from the Institute of Creation Research. They've had a group of scientists that have been involved in a, a lengthy 10-year investigation of uh, all the different kinds of dating methods and techniques, and they produced one book already which is extremely technical. I don't have the science background to understand uh, all the argumentations and everything that are in there. Some of you do, and I think you'd enjoy that. But they're supposed to release their final uh, study this fall, and they just have some uh, devastating data to show that all of these different types of, of dating methods are totally flawed. 
And they're flawed because their presupposition shapes how they handle the data. They, they come to the data with the assumption that the universe is billions of years old, and so that shapes everything, and it causes them to be blind to a vast number of, uh, of facts and to just ignore large amounts of data. So we're going to start with the flood of 2504 B.C. And the next major event comes between the flood and Abram, and we don't know when it occurred, and that's the Tower of Babel. And the best that I can suggest is that the major player is Nimrod. Nimrod is the third generation after Noah. And we have a passage that talks about Peleg, and during the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And if that's a reference to the Tower of Babel and the division of languages, then the... Tower of Babel occurred somewhere between uh, 2300 and uh, 2200 B.C., probably, let's just say, 2250 for an approximate date, about two to 300 years after the flood. So the first event, point number one, the flood occurs in 2504 B.C. Second event, point number two, the Tower of Babel occurred approximately 2300 to 2200 B.C. Third point on the timeline, Abraham is born about 2166 B.C. Now, why do we have to worry with these dates? Well, there's, going to, there's a progression and a deterioration that takes place during this time. As opposed to evolution, society isn't gradually improving. What we see is a degradation that occurs in society after the flood, a deterioration. And this occurs dramatically in these two to three hundred years between the flood and the Tower of Babel. So our fourth point is to recognize that during the approximately two to three hundred years between the flood and Babel, the human race multiplied incredibly to at least several million people. And I think we can recognize that because during those 300 years, the generations, even though their their age spans, the length of time a person lived, is reduced from 900 years to about five or 400 years, 500, 400, 300, gradually deteriorates. It's still, during that period, well over 400 years. So you have all these generations living together. In 300 years, you might have as many as seven or eight generations living uh, contemporaneously. There would have been very few deaths, and if they had large numbers of children, then they could easily have reached a, a population of several million. They might have, if they had 15, 20 children in each family, they would have uh, a large number of population. And some of them spread out throughout the Middle East, but they really didn't scatter around the earth like uh, God had promised. So they began to establish major uh, urban areas and they seem to localize around uh, Babel. And that's when you have the episode of their rebellion, building the Tower of Babel uh, over against God's command to scatter. Now, I don't want to get into all of that. I just want to draw some conclusions from it. So point number five hits on a conclusion. Spiritually, that time period began with eight people who were all believers, who all understood the existence of God, the righteousness and justice of God, and the grace of God. They understood that God was a personal personal God. They knew He was an infinite God, but also that He was a personal God because He had appeared to them to establish the Noahic Covenant. So point number five, spiritually, this time period began with eight believers who understood the nature of ultimate reality. But point number six, within three generations... Nimrod is born, the grandson of Noah, you start seeing the perversion of religion into nature religions and the worship of the forces of nature and especially fertility and sexuality. And this begins during that period between the flood and the Tower of Babel. And they begin to worship other gods. This degeneration, point number seven, is described for us in Romans chapter one. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter one. Romans one gives us the cycles of degradation, describes what happens, and provides a fitting 
analysis for the background, what led up to, to Sodom. The point I'm making here is here is Sodom 500 years after the flood. And they are so perverse and so degenerate that God has to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, how did they get that way? What's going on? Let's go to Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God, that is the judgment of God from his righteousness, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what was going on in that period was that men were rejecting reality as God defined it. And they are worshiping other gods, they're deifying nature, and they're suppressing the truth. They no longer want to look at the world as God said it is, but they're starting to twist it and distort it, come up with alternate views and explanations of reality. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, this is not stating the validity of the teleological argument, otherwise known as intelligent design, because those are philosophical um, those are philosophical arguments that are structured, and they can be taken apart uh, through any, by any good logician at times, and sometimes they're not stated very well. But what this is saying is that everything in creation is of such a nature, God has structured everything, that there is something in the human soul that is, it's like a radio signal or something. There's something within the human soul that receives a nonverbal testimony from the stars, from the sun, from the moon, and everything is broadcasting to man created in what? In the image and likeness of God, that God exists. It's a nonverbal revelation. And man, every man, he doesn't have to think through something as precise as a teleological argument or the cosmological argument, or any of the other arguments for the existence of God. He just knows there is this nonverbal testimony that resonates in the, in the soul of fallen man that God exists. And everyone knows it so that, the last phrase of verse 20, so that they are without excuse, so that no one can say, I didn't know. God, I didn't know you existed. You never said anything to me. God says, yeah, I'm blasting you all the time, and you knew it, and you suppressed it in unrighteousness. So we go on to read in verse 21, because although they knew God, see, the whole thrust here is God has shown it to them, it's manifest in them, uh, they, they know from the cre- creation of the world, they know from everything around them, that these attributes of God, so they're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. This is the post-flood civilization. But became futile, that is, empty, vain, in their thoughts. They constructed uh, origin myths that were completely foreign to reality. They started coming up with ideas that there were these various gods that got involved in a battle or they got involved in some sort of sexual activity, and as a result of that, the, uni- the material universe came into existence. They're, they were futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They came up with the most sophisticated things they could, and even today, you look at the men who promote evolution and evolutionary theory, and what do they what do they have? They have multiple PhDs. These are some of the brightest and best in our society. They have tremendous IQs. They profess to be wise, but they became fools. Why? Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Once you reject God, then you, everything else starts to fall apart. So they, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God or change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, this was the first stage in the development of human viewpoint religion after the flood, as they began to worship nature and animals and the forces of nature. 
And therefore, as a result of that, you have the first cycle of divine judgment. God gave them up to uncleanness. See, their immorality, the lust in their heart, uh, dishonoring their bodies among themselves, all of that is judgment on them because they rejected God. It's not the other way around. God, as it were, God begins to take the restraint off of a culture, a society, or a group of people, the more negative they become so that their proclivities of their sin nature are less restrained and it gets worse and worse and worse. So the first cycle is in verses 24, 25. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. This is our second cycle of degeneracy. God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. This is uh, lesbianism, homosexuality among women. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, uh, that which is due. It's shameful. See, we live in a society now that even many of us who've grown up with stuff like this, we see it on television, we see it in the movies, it's lost the impact of the shame, the stigma that should be there. Even No matter how doctrinally oriented we are, we still have lost some of that because we're surrounded by it. And it's lost its shame and embarrassment, and it should be. That just shows how even our souls become callous to the sin that's around us. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. It's our third cycle of degeneracy. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, really describes postmodern American culture. And it's a perfect description of what was going on in the Canaanite culture in the ancient world. You see it really played out in the book of Judges. And that's what the book of Judges is all about. If you haven't listened to the Judges series, you ought to. It's a series for today. Judges tells how a nation goes from, pagani- from, from spirituality to paganism. At the beginning of Judges, they're at the, the high point of their victory over the Canaanites. And they're trusting God, following God. Joshua's leading them, and they're moving out. But when you get to the end of the book of Judges, they're under the oppression of the Philistines. Their greatest leader is a womanizer, a pervert, uh, a man who can't control his own lusts, his own passions. He never shows one ounce of uh, desire to follow the Lord and to do anything uh, that would be positive spiritually, and that's Samson. And so you see throughout this whole book the deterioration of Israel into moral relativism. And Romans 1 gives us that same uh, cycle of degeneracy. So at this point, I've covered seven basic points. The first three or four actually just deal with the chronology. That point number one, in 2504 B.C., the flood occurred. Point number two, the Tower of Babel occurred approximately 2300 to 2200 B.C., about two to three hundred years later. Point number three, Abraham is born in 2166 B.C. Point number four, we begin to draw conclusions that during that two to three hundred year period, the human race multiplied to millions, and during that time there is this degeneracy spiritually. Point number five, spiritually the time began with eight people who are presumably believers, and within 300 years nobody's following the Lord, and God has to give up on the whole human race and work exclusively through one individual, Abraham. That's how bad it got and how fast it deteriorated. And we think man's basically good. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. Man is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know him? And Romans 1, 17 and follow, or 18 and following describes that degeneracy. Now, to understand what's happening, we have to go back to a breakdown of the divine institutions. 
This is fundamental, and I have five divine institutions. So let's define a divine institution. A divine institution is a social, uh, social structure that God has established for the uh, safety, security, perpetuation, and stability of the human race. For the safety, the security, the perpetuation, and the stability of the human race. It's not for believer only. It's for believers and unbelievers. And the first divine institution is individual responsibility. Man is accountable to God. But what happens when man rejects God, like we see in Romans 1.20, when they reject God and they begin to worship the creature rather than the creator, then to whom do they become accountable? They become accountable to whoever has the power to enforce whatever rules and laws there might be. That's called tyranny. So once you see a breakdown in individual responsibility, man becomes subordinate to, to strong men, tyrants, despots. And that's really what you had after the flood. As one of the first divine institutions to go was individual responsibility, and you had uh, some of the most tyrannical leaders in all of human history develop in terms of the uh, divine kings of Egypt and the kings of the Mesopotamian empires. I mean, these were men who uh, were much more tyrannical and despotic than any of the despots of our era, Sodom Hussein. That's why he wanted to be like Nebuchadnezzar. It's because he wanted that kind of power. Second divine institution is marriage. The husband is the leader in the home. When that is perverted, the home breaks down. The home is the institution in which values are perpetuated to the next generation so that they're taught, they're handed down. Parents discipline a child. Having children is viewed biblically as a wonderful blessing from God because this is the greatest way in which you can impact society is through having children, raising children, teaching them doctrine, and then just as a warrior sends arrows against the enemy, the the man who has many children is viewed as a warrior who sends his children out into culture. Then you have the third divine institution, which is a family, where the parents are the authority. And, of course, we see this breaking down in our own society. Now, these first three divine institutions are all established before the fall. And these three divine institutions are what breaks down when you get into Sodom. Individual responsibility. There's no God. We're not accountable to anybody. So we can do whatever we want to with our own bodies. We can do whatever we want to with our culture because we're not accountable to anybody. So marriage then becomes perverted and you get into uh, uh, all sorts of sexual sin and sexual perversion. And then third, there's the family and the family breaks down once the marriage breaks down. And the result of this is the whole society just becomes fragmented. And we'll do an analysis of this as we go along. Fourth, the fourth divine institution is governing judicial authority. We could just say judicial authority because God establishes with the Noahic covenant the authority, He delegates to man the authority to take human life when someone has committed murder. And that is such a tremendous responsibility that all other legal action flows from that. If man has the uh, responsibility to take the life of another human being because they've committed murder, then man has the right to execute justice and judgment in all lesser areas. So we have the establishment of judicial authority, the delegation of judicial authority, and, of course, that becomes the basis for human government. And then the fifth comes out of the Tower of Babel, which is when God divides the languages, divides man into various tribal groups, and it is that distinction that becomes nations uh, that is important for the perpetuation of the human race. And, of course, the ultimate authority there is back to God, because God is the one who governs history. And that's what we see in the breakdown in Sodom and Gomorrah, is that God is going to intervene because all the divine institutions have broken down, and he is going to uh, take them out as a, uh, as a national entity. So that brings us to point eight. That is that as part of the religious degeneration, we see that social and sexual degeneration develops. You can't separate them. 
The biblical viewpoint is that these things always go together. And when man rejects God's authority, he also rejects God's established institutions. Not only does man pervert himself, but he perverts God's intention for society and the institutions of society. Well, that takes us up through eight introductory points before we get into chapter 19. So this is going to take more than a couple of weeks. But I'm convinced we have to learn to think biblically. This is such an issue in our society that if you don't learn to think in terms of history, because once you read the claims that are being made by, from the homosexual agenda, it's connected to history, it's connected to ethics, it's connected to religious claims, and all these things have to be taken into account. It's not just a matter of the fact that they prefer someone of the same sex versus someone of the opposite sex. That's what they want everybody to believe. But what is involved in this is a total perversion of history and of all the institutions of society, and ultimately it's a, it's a, it is a religious statement and a rejection of God. So... We'll develop our thinking on this more in the next uh, couple of weeks. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that it gives us insight into your plans and purposes in history. You reveal for us as human beings what the structures are, that we can have stability and we can have peace and and, uh, society can go forward, and also what happens when we violate your, your establishment principles. And, Father, we pray that as we study these things, it will give give us greater insight into what's going on in the culture around us and that we can be able to evaluate the uh, contemporary events from a biblical viewpoint. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.